You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. It's often touted that consumers have access to so much data nowadays and therefore we can make educated decisions. But how do we make sense of this data? How do we avoid information overload? How do we reconcile conflicting data? And how do we recognise spin? What I'm getting at is that when it comes to property data, what information is useful and what is a red herring? In this episode, we pick the brains of Louis Christopher, one of Australia's most recognised and respected property analysts. Louis is a founder of SQM Research, an investment research house which specialises in providing accurate research and data to financial institutions, investment professionals and investors. His objective, candid and honest approach to the real estate market is one of the foundations on which SQM Research has been built on. So today we're going to find out what data Louis believes is the most important and why. G'day Louis, how are you doing? Good to be here, Chris. And I know I, I did call yourself Lewis, but it's not Lewis, is it? It's no, Louis. it's always been Louis. Yeah. Silent S. How does that all work, actually? Just out of, out of curiosity, I didn't know about that, about the French. Is that the, yeah, how it's, the French it's, do it? Yeah, it's, it's how the French do it. I'm not French. Yeah. Uh, but it's how it's what my mother decided to name me <laughs> uh, back in the early 70s. And uh, so, yeah, L-O-U-I-S, whenever you see that spelling, you, you do not. Uh, pronounce it with an S. And not say the S. Just yep. remember the Louis the Fly. That's okay. <laughs> yes. So thank you for coming on. Um, you know, I've uh, read lots of your reports over many years and I think it's um, very insightful to kind of think about where things are going. Yes. In terms of, um, you know, to actually build that and to look at where things are going, you've got to look at some type of indicators and some data. And So what are some of the data and indicators that you really fo- put a lot of energy into and, and focus on? Well, as part of the report forecast, which we do at the capital city level, we take into account leading indicators as well as more longer term indicators. And how the forecasts are effectively built there is a bit of a quantitative model that's going on in there. And then there is an overlay of a qualitative aspect to it. So there is a bit of gut feel that goes into it as well, just to make sure that the numbers that come out through the model make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And because there's no quant model out there that's foolproof or perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a combination of the two. Uh, We generally release those numbers, uh, all those forecasts, either October or November, uh, for the up and coming year. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Um, and we, as you've you've you know, just mentioned earlier, uh, we generally run a number of scenarios to take into account. For example, what happens if we see a change in interest rates, or more yeah. recently, what happens if APRA were to step into the market to restrict mm-hmm. lending once again or loosen lending? Um, and you know, we've, we've run those scenarios for 2020. We ran four scenarios actually for uh, the next year. So when you were actually building that, before building that report though, yep. like, you know, as things that, like days are tipping over, there's always new yes. data coming in. Yes, there is. But when the, what's the, the new data that's coming in that you're like, I've got, I'm really looking forward to December 20 when lending figures get released or yes. what's some of the things that you think are tangible indicators that people should be looking at? So a number of the indicators that we put more weight on yep. include auction clearance rates. Mm-hmm. They include housing finance approvals. They include stock listings and asking prices. Yep. 
So uh, we're keen to understand, uh, just going back to stock listings, whether listings are rising or falling and what component of those listings are rising or falling. Is it, for example, new listings or is it the old stock that's yes. now being absorbed or not, mm. which is a big bit of a telling indicator for us that there's more buyer demand out there. I think or, that's a good one there just to talk to stop on because yeah. um, I do actually uh, really like this of your research compared to some other research where you go on the suburb level and you kind of then report on listings within that suburb, don't that's, you? That's right. Yeah. And I think that's quite hard to take, get that research, that data some other ways. But what you're saying is there, it's not just about combining all the listings together. You're saying some of this old stock that's been maybe on the market for 60, 90 days, yes. is that stuff selling yes. rather than the stuff that's been on for two weeks or a week, which is obviously hot stuff, is the cold stuff or the, the market stale on. Yes. Is that selling? Have you noticed that starting to shift? Well, that that's uh, certainly one of the developments that has happened in recent months at the old stock. So when I say old stock, I talk about stock that's been on the market for, say, over 90 days. 90. Mm. Um, we've been noticing that that's been declining in Sydney and Melbourne, as well as some of the other cities, such as Brisbane. Mm. Uh, and so that's actually brought our overall listings down even while we've been registering a rise in new listings. Uh, so despite the rise in new listings, total listings have been falling. And I've seen this occur in each and every upward cycle effectively since I got into this business yep. many years ago. Uh, so for us, that was uh, uh, particularly confirmation of the recent upturn in the market, a very telling indicator. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's so mm. much conversation around there about a lack of stock at the moment and, and on the ground we feel it. But it, it's sort of hidden. It, it, the, the real true story is hidden in a little way because, like you say, that you've got property. When you look at actually data that uh, levels of, uh, should I say, when you look at numbers that have sold yeah. this year versus last year, mm. it's pretty standard. It's pretty stable in a lot of suburbs that I buy. So we buy in the inner city um, yes. or inner ring of um, Sydney. Yes, it's actually quite stable. We go back, you know, for 12 months and we say, well, 12 months ago, pretty much the same um, amount of property sold in the 12 months prior to that as has sold in the last 12 months. That's, that's very common, actually. And so that flies in the face of this perception of no stock. But then again, you've got this stock that's been sitting on the market for a long time and it's taken a while to absorb. But still yes. the transactions is rather the same in many suburbs. But then you've got this whole, whole idea of how many properties are going to auction. And you see the auction numbers suburb on, you know, in many of these suburbs is, yes. is a lot higher now than it was a year ago. Yes, it is. So, yeah, mm. so it's interesting. And what you talk about there is that sort of absorption of stock into the market. I think the notion is changing. I think it was, it was a very fair comment to say certainly mid-year this year that we, we had very few listings mm. in the marketplace. Uh, it was it was a, a very dry winter, as it were, yeah. for, mm. for property. Um on our numbers in terms of those listings, it started to change uh, in September. Mm. Mind you, October was a, a, an abnormal month. Uh, normally you see a rise in listings in October yeah. and we re registered a fall. Mm. But then the most recent month of November was a big surge in listings mm. um, and uh, predominantly driven by newer stock. And so I think that's basically a reaction by sellers who uh, how are now responding to the very strong market conditions mm -hmm. in Sydney and in Melbourne. Uh, so we, in my opinion, we are now seeing a return to normal in terms of listing activity and sales activity in Sydney and Melbourne. And that's likely to keep going throughout the course of 2020, I think. Uh, I think that we're going to see more sellers next year uh, come along and, and sell in, in what is a, a good market to sell in. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, on that kind of old stock, just kind of killing that um, idea um, is, you know, I guess it's why would that property sell? And the reason is it's generally there's something flawed about it, like it's on a main road or it's a bad layout. Yes. Or the buyers just don't want or it. it's simply or, overpriced. Or, which is what I was going to say. Or next is they just want too much for it. You, you know, that's the really the primary reason why stock doesn't sell yep. is that it's overpriced. Mm. I mean, every property has its price, even mm. even the, the really low-quality properties. Everything will sell. Mm. It's just a matter of what price does it actually sell for. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's where many vendors become unstuck. They, of course, have a very uh, biased view of what their property is worth. That's right. 
and uh, you know that's just human nature for you. <laughs> um, and uh, it you know it takes some adjustment for sellers if if they really have um, uh, listed their property well and truly above the market, and especially if the market's falling. It's going to be there for a very very long time. And that's what I think I've seen is, is that. The stuff that has been overpriced, yes. you know, they've sat on, they've maybe gone through two or three agents because yes. the agent's like, come on, you're never going to sell this. You're not going to meet the market. Yes, I overpromised you to get the listing because yes. I said you what you wanted they to hear. The yes. Yeah, now I know that you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, adjust to market conditions. Yeah. I'm going to move on to someone else. But fortunately, I think a lot of these sellers have, um, the market's moved, right? Very and uh, and so, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, they've been overpriced. Now the market's gone up and now they've sold because... They've met the market because the market's gone up. The market's finally caught up to them. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, well, some of them still are outstripping the market. Yeah. <laughs> They're still outstripping yeah. the market. And, and I think, uh, I, as you may be aware, we've got an asking prices index. Mm. And that has surged in Sydney and Melbourne over the past 90 days. We're recording basically over 5% rises in that time. And it's telling me that you know, sellers are... They're, they're moving their expectations upwards mm. in a big way. Mm. Which is interesting because that in itself can can slow things down, can't it? And, you know, there's all these levers that happen. Where How do you get the asking prices data? We monitor all online real estate listings around the country. So it's, that's capturing um, uh, auction price guides as well as, as they're published because they're often not. So it's just what is published? Is that yeah, how it Yes, so works? it, it can the, the index itself does not put in an auction price guide. Mm. Uh, so we, we leave that at B mm. uh, unless that auction turns into a private treaty at a later point. Yep. And if they put a price range on as a private treaty, we will then take the lower point of the price range. How does that work, though, in, say, Sydney and Melbourne in particular, where you've got a very high proportion of properties going to auction? There is this... Perception that, um, you know, what do we regard as a high proportion? What if I said to you that auctions as a percentage of the overall market in Sydney is still less than 20%? And so the problem with that, of course, is that you've got like the inner markets behaving in, yes. in a very different way to say the outer markets. Yes. And there's different types of stock that's more likely to be taken to auction versus not taken to auction. So does that then skew the data in some way? Because you're really representing a... a a segment of the market that's not truly representative of the entire market? It is true that the asking prices index doesn't represent the entire listings market. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. But I would argue rather strongly it still represents a strong sample, a large sample yeah. of it. Mm. Um, it is also true that uh, during times of, of booms, uh, less and less vendors actually put an asking price on. Mm. Yes, so, exactly. <laughs> yes. So generally speaking, the sample size that I've noticed over time generally ranges between 60 to about 85% of the market. And in stronger times, it does fall towards that 60%. And in, other time, in weaker times, you start seeing it more 85%. Now, what we actually publish in terms of an asking price, it's not a straight out raw median asking price. So we put in certain techniques into the index to basically adjust uh, to, to ensure that it's not skewed right. as much as it could be. Mm. Uh, so we use what's called as a stratification approach, which is one of the approaches that uh, my old company, Australian Property Monitors, now known as generally Domain, uses with their index, which is published by the Reserve Bank of Australia. And that generally helps minimise, though it doesn't entirely eliminate, minimise this potential skewness that you can get where, for example, in one period, the median price could be skewed downwards because there's a whole mm. bunch of properties at the lower end of the market have yeah. suddenly sold only for the very next period where there's a whole bunch of properties at the upper end of the market yeah. selling. So a stratification approach effectively smooths that out. It, right. it, it can really minimise that to good effect to keep that skewness out. Mm. But in saying all this, look, you know, that there is no perfect index out there. And fundamentally the reason is is because every property is unique yeah. to, to an extent, right? It's not like yeah. the share market where no. you've got a standardised share. A BHP share is a BHP share, right? Mm. Uh, but not every house is the same as every house. Yep. Which is and what makes I, it so interesting. It, it, that yeah. is correct. Mm. Uh, and so the challenge will always be there. 
in terms of um, trying to improve indexes further, trying to get it right. But it, I don't think there'll ever be a perfect index because of this this issue regarding uniqueness. So I think, um, you know, uh, one thing I, was, I think is interesting at the moment, I had a client um, just this week and uh, it's got a nice apartment in Potts Point. And, uh, you know, it's a cracking apartment. Like it's on, you know, Victoria overlooking the city views, quite a big two better parking. Like this thing should rent. It was renting for 1100 bucks a week. Yes. Uh, but now it's been on the market for seven weeks and she Ooh. can't rent it. Mm. What's happening to... Hang on, Sydney. she can't rent it or she can't rent it at 1100 a week? Uh, she's dropped it, but she only dropped it 50 bucks. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's not, you know, it's yeah. still it was a percentage. It's still a, a big so, drop. What, yeah. what suburb was this again? Potts Point. Potts Point. So, right. and, and so you would say that, um, and it is targeting probably the higher end mm. market, but I just mm. thought it was interesting. I chatted to her and I had my views on it. Mm. But what's your views around what's happening to the rental market in terms of the Sydney market, obviously. Yes, well, in Sydney, there's two contrasting markets right now. We've got a, a very strong sales market. Mm. As you know, prices mm. are rising and, and very few would disagree with that now. Uh, but on the other hand, the rental market has actually been weak for about the past two years. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the reason why it has been weak is because we had a surge in supply of new dwellings from the last property boom. Mm. Indeed, completion. So I'm just peaking now. Yeah. Right? Just now. Yeah, yeah. And mm. so uh, you may well be aware we've got a rental vacancy rates index. Yes. So at the moment, our rental vacancy rates index for Sydney is, is got a read of 3.1%. Mm. Um, it has been as high as effectively just over 3.5%. And generally when you see rental vacancies with a three on it, it's generally a tenant's market. Mm. And sure enough, rents have been falling. So on our asking rental indexes, uh, asking rents in Sydney have fallen over the past 12 months by some 4.5%. And so um, I keep going back to what I sometimes love about your research is that you go down to a suburb level. Yes. And then you show the vacancy rates in some suburbs. Yeah. And can you explain some suburbs, for example, in Sydney that you can recall where Mm. that vacancy rate is a lot more than... 3%? 3%? Oh, yes, yes. So uh, <laughs> particularly out in Sydney's northwest, right? Mm. Uh, so uh, at one point uh, out in Box Hill, we were recording a vacancy rate of about 12%. Okay. Wow. Now, this, of course, if you know Box Hill, it's been a, um, an area which has recently been opened up and subdivided to a housing estate. It's all used to be you know, uh, farmland paddocks, mm. right? Mm. Um, and now it's all effectively to states like what you see in Rouse Hill and mm. Kellyville and so, so forth. So effectively, in a relatively short space of time, we had a surge of new dwellings enter into the marketplace, mm. and this created a, a, a surge in rental vacancy but rates because they like, were not all taken out. Yeah, and obviously not all sold to owner-occupiers. No, mm. no, that's right. There were t- many of them were bought out by investors who <laughs> wanted to rent them out, and see... What's happened, you can almost consider that the, the city's northwest or the Hills District has been the, the, empi, the epicentre of the oversupply in Sydney. Yes. But the oversupply has been that significant that it's spread out to other suburbs. Um, you know, there's been a bit of a mm. trickle effect. Mm. Um, that's that's it, it, happened. The same things happen with apartments, say in Mascot and Rosebury and that sort of area. Mascot, Rosebury, out. Parramatta as well. Yeah. Uh, that That is correct. Mm. Uh, but in terms of the absolute count of dwellings entering into yeah. the marketplace, it's been Sydney's northwest where wow. you've seen the, the bulk of dwellings, new dwellings come in. And so how long would you say it takes for that to be absorbed into the general market? Well, that depends on the population growth rate. Mm. So in Sydney, it's been running fairly strongly. We're, we're, it's currently running now at about 1.7% a, a year, which represents yep. Sydney effectively expanding by about 100,000 people each and every year. Mm. Mm. So presuming that that population growth rate keeps going, um, it is very likely we'll see this stock finally being absorbed somewhere around 2021, 2022. My worry with that is I just saw in the um, the the, and it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on how your view, how you've kind of been able to constantly, you know, you have to keep changing. You new data comes in, yes. things are always changing, unpredictable things happen, and we yes. have to keep shifting. So interesting to talk through how, yeah, you've seen the boom and the bust and how things have changed so dramatic. But what, I think the speed of the recovery over the last six months, because of the APRA and the interest rate cuts, um, and the lending 
becoming much easier to get access to rather than the Royal Commission has been extremely fast. And what developers are now saying, well, we can now start selling these things again. And mm. so why you say that stock's going to get absorbed, I was, you know, starting to read that house and land packages are starting to, to kind of start hitting the market again because developers know they can start shifting them because there's demand again. Well, well that, that's our existing stock that yeah, they've got yeah. on their books. Mm. No, like as in new farms transacting mm. Mm. with the idea that we're going to turn it. We're house. going to turn it. So they, they may well be starting to, to buy more. Well, I mean... It takes a long, yes. there's a long lead time on that though, and that's one of the issues. I was talking to a, um, mm. an urban planner yesterday around that, as, mm. as a mm. that that you know he's riding with a whole bunch of developers, and everything's slowed right down in terms of construction. Of course, we're talking more apartments there, but there's the subdivision. It's not a quick process, and no. they've, they've got to you know buy the land, fund the land, you know go through all their DA processes, development processes, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite a long lead time. And so the question the, is, are they buying in uh, land that hasn't been rezoned yet? Mm, exactly. Mm. Uh, so if they're buying in uh, land that's uh, still zoned for farming, they're taking a risk mm. and that takes a lot longer again to do. Yeah, so, that's a good point. Uh, some of these developers may well be having like a five to ten year view, yeah. mm. buying now with a view of let's hold, mm. uh, let's get this process going. Um, and then, you know, in five years' time, the market will certainly be different and then we can we can release. Yeah, it's funny because I, I just, you know, when in the boom, like it was pretty crazy when you're flipping open the pages in the property section, you would see, you know, some Chinese company or some whoever it was, even yes. Stockland, yes. it would be lots big and they're spending $150 million for this farm that's 45 k from Melbourne CBD. And yes. it was kind of like this height of optimism where even the developers were starting to, you know, fall for it because they thought the party would go on forever. Yes. Um, and it, I just thought it was interesting because they, they, the sales weren't happening and now that all of a sudden they're starting to, to pop up again. The thing is I would say to that is, look, have a good look at the building approval numbers released mm. by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Mm. Now, they only it was a couple of weeks ago they released their numbers for October. And that October re re registered an 8% decline in one month for mm. building approvals, which is part of a downward trend where building approvals in New South Wales are well off by over 30%. Mm. Now, the thing I have some real concerns about for the greater economy is we've got a situation right now where completions, as I mentioned before, are peaking in New South Wales now from the last boom. They're, yep. they're peaking now. When we look at the step downwards, so the pipeline, We've got commencements well and truly below completions mm. and then building approvals, which is the first stage, well and truly below commencements. Yep. Now, what this means is this. <laughs> you're a labourer. Let's say you're a builder's labourer, right? You've been working on these projects. Project's now completed. Normally, you move on to the next one, right? Well, here's the issue. There's no next one coming, right? There's, there's less commencements out there. This means job losses, Okay, uh, and if you look at the recent unemployment numbers, unemployment's actually rising. We actually had the last month yep. uh, negative job creation, which is alarming given our very strong population growth rates mm. we've got in this country, right? We should be at least creating jobs all the time given that yep. population growth rate, but we're not right now. So what this means is that this is a rather negative for the economy, and it's something that... Uh, the powers of B are going to be grappling with in 2020 and potentially could create some shortness on this current cycle. There is a scenario that could play out here where the economy tanks, you're not going to see very strong house price growth, that's for sure. No, that's right. I think you're right as well. It's, it's you know, if you're looking at these numbers, I do as well look at the, you know, the what's coming in terms of the housing market and you just think, you know, that's a lot of jobs. I think it's like 9% of the economy yes. is employed in construction. So yep. it's huge numbers. The reality is as well, they've also, you say Australia hasn't been having wage growth. Like that's probably the, the whole market. Yep. The construction industry is having, has had big wage growth as well. So they're, <laughs> they're actually on high paying jobs, a lot of them. <laughs> so it's not only you're losing your job, but you're losing a lot of people earning good money who are spending money. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So over the last few years, um, you would have to say that uh, lots of things have been unpredictable, but every year is unpredictable. But what, how do you, how is your view, Connor? Let's say when you were thinking in 2017, you know, your forecast for what was going to happen in 2018 mm. and then in 2018 what you thought was going to happen in 2019. How have you felt like things have kind of progressed and what you expected to happen and what did happen? 
You know, I think one of the developments um, in the property market that's changed over my time, um, one of the major ones is actually the intervention by regulatory authorities in the marketplace. Mm. And, and when I say that, I'm really thinking of APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. Uh, so they started stepping in and, and having an influence on the market really from about 2015. Their view was that risks were building in the market at the time and that they needed to basically contain credit growth. Uh, and between the period 2015 to 2017, they started ratcheting up uh, their restrictions. And then in 2017, um, they then put on the big final restriction was uh, uh, restrictions on interest-only lending. And that actually turned out to have a really large impact upon the market. I think it was a combination of factors, but that was like the straw that broke the camel's back in, in 2017. And uh, that definitely uh, triggered the downturn that we had. Now, our forecast in 2018, one which we actually didn't do so well, that's one year we, we, we generally didn't do well, is because we underestimated that impact upon the market. Mm. We forecasted a slowdown for that year, for 2018. And as we know, we actually had four falls in Sydney and Melbourne. Other cities we generally did okay on, but the two big ones that get all the headlines, we didn't do so well on mm. that year. Um <laughs> 2019 this year, so I gave myself basically a three out of 10 for forecasting for that year. Yeah. <laughs> and this year I'm giving myself a six out of 10. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, we did well last year to having one of our uh, scenarios, uh, uh, which was regarded at the time as very unlikely, a liberal victory, mm. and what that would actually mean for the market. So yeah. the scenario was if the Libs were to win, the market would bottom out and we would see a recovery in the second half of the year. Yeah. Of course, what actually played out was, yes, the Libs did win. But on top of that, we had rate cuts. Yeah. We had APRA reversing course. We had tax cuts. Yep. And so not only did we have a recovery, we had a V-shaped recovery mm. where the market's gone, as we all know now in Sydney and Melbourne, from bust to boom in mm. a very short space of time. Yeah. It's a really interesting, I think what also played into that was the market went further down than it probably would have because people were so concerned that Labor were going to win the election. And so, mm. you know, the bounce back was even further because they were so the, certain that Labor were going to win. The market was absolutely surprised by the election yeah. result. And on our indexes, <laughs> the market literally bottomed out the week after the election. Mm. Um, so it, it goes to show that, you know, how much that was weighing on the market. Mm. Uh, so, um, yes, it was a, a, an interesting time for forecasting. But more to the point, one of the things that uh, concerns me, I guess, going forward is how much influence and how much power has become concentrated by so few people in terms of their influence on the market. Yeah, this is because it's not a free market anymore, is it? Well, you know... When I first entered into this game many years ago, and, and you know, entering this game was simply doing property data and putting indexes together, mm -hmm. and then it, that started to morph into terms of people asking what I thought the market might do. Um, I used to just focus on what interest rates may well do, what the exchange rate may well do, what the GDP numbers are, what the yeah. employment numbers are. Mm. Um, and nowadays, I've got to think about what um, APRA's chairman is thinking. Mm. What's his mindset right now? <laughs> What's the RBA governor's mindset? What's the relationship between Scott Morrison, Wayne Burrs, uh, and uh, Governor Lowe? Mm. How, how do they get on? Mm. What's going on there between them? Because they, between the three of them, they have a massive influence upon the direction of the market. My view is they're probably not getting along right because they're all throwing each other under the bus. It's it's interesting. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, on the greater economy, you've got the RBA basically mm. making noises that the federal government should be doing more on the fiscal side. Uh, but I, I do note the change in APRA's view of the world mm. because it went from, okay, we've got to minimise risks in the banking sector, we've got to slow down credit growth, and then all of a sudden they turned around at the height of the downturn to say, oh, those risks are gone now. Mm. You know, everything's great. We're going to now loosen things up. 
Yes. Um, and yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It, it <laughs> is. It is interesting. And you know, the other background behind this as well is that Scott Morrison is a big property guy. That's been his background. He used to head up uh, research and policy over at the Property Council of Australia. There's no question he's a property guy. Mm, interesting. Mm. And he loves his footy. <laughs> <laughs> so the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. What's your view on APRA? You know, you say loosening the market. I was a bit shocked because I, I expected rate cuts. I think everyone knew that the world's in low interest rates, you know, economies and stalling a little mm. bit. Mm. The, the logical next thing to do is to cut rates, you know. Yes. And so rate mm. cuts were kind of already, you know, Bill Evans was talking about, everyone was talking about rate mm. cuts. Mm. But APRA dropping their servicing rate from 7% or 7.25 down to, and the bank's are using 5.3 now. Yeah, that's right. Like, this, it's, it's a massive change. Were you expecting mm. that or did you think that they, they would just hold their position and say, well, let's just think about the broader economy here. Let's not try to kick off house prices again. Yes. Yeah, so I have been surprised by the turnaround in, in APRA's view of the world. Mm. It's almost like they've done a backflip. It mm. is. It's a reversal. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. Uh, and is that an admission though? Do you think that, that they over – overstep the mark or potentially or is it that someone's leaning on them mm, so you're uh, a conspiracy theorist as well uh, <laughs> well i don't know this is this is the i have to consider all these factors yeah, right yes. and i'm trying to and i'm trying to work this out i don't mm. know for sure mm. i i know the chairman of apra is um friends of scott morrison mm. i'm not reading in, any more into that than what it is right but that from my understanding is true uh, and so, you know, it just goes back to in terms of forecasting, it becomes even more complex and more challenging when I'm trying to have to think about what's the mindset of these particular key people. Oh, this is, this and is, it's, this is great elephant in the room stuff. Thank you very much, Louis. And I, I, I would, I'm on Louis' side here. I think that is definitely, I think, is what Chris I think. This is a too. conspiracy theorist, just by the way. Reality <laughs> is property, um, is which is Louis has already spoken about, um, is such a big part of the economy and mm. new construction um, is an even bigger part of the oh, economy because of all the money they make on taxes and land releases, et cetera, oh, et cetera. Yeah. It, it is big, but here's the issue we've got now. So we've got a housing recovery in Sydney, Melbourne, to a lesser extent, Brisbane, but it seems to be, based on what we've just discussed before, it's a jobless housing recovery. Mm. Mm. So, yep, we're getting higher house prices. Is that really going to translate to greater confidence in the economy as what the authorities are currently hoping for now? And I've got some questions about that. This means real estate agents stay in work. Well, one indicator proving your point is um, so one of the things we would usually do if we get lower rates um, is what they hope we do is we go and spend it. But the reality is if you speak to any of the banks and Mm. what I see is people are paying off their mortgages faster um, rather than seeing lower rates as a good thing, we go spend more money. So consumers aren't really going in. Is spending. They're just trying to save, so they're being more conservative. You know, I was actually talking to someone the other day mm. just on this. We talk about retail figures because that's obviously something that, mm. that comes out. And, um, you know, and I was, ugh, I guess I don't think too much about that per se. I know that confidence in terms of, you know, the wealth effect, and obviously if we're mm. confident in the value of our property, it's not going down, we're more likely to go out there and spend money in, in shops or yep. on white mm. goods and mm. housing improvements and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I know it's all linked. And I know that, that, Bricks and mortar retail has been falling, you know, and uh, and and I've always just thought, of, well, that's because it's been replaced by online. Well, I was talking mm. to somebody who's in the online space who was basically saying, no, online retail is also falling. Yes, that's right. Uh, mm. So it's on retail side, it's it's there is a component which has been a structural change from people buying at the shops versus buying online. Yeah. But there's also been a cyclical element as well in the sense that, yes, even online retail has been falling, mm. which signifies that, look, there has been weakness in the economy. Uh, 
I suspect in all this, what's been going on is, okay, while we don't have real uh, underlying inflation occurring in the economy, we've got asset price inflation occurring. And is that a lot driven because of low interest rates? Yes, low interest rates, uh, the fear of missing out, the fear of if I do not buy a home now, no matter what it takes in terms of taking out that mortgage, I'm going to miss out on buying that home in the future or not get as a good a home or might not be able to buy Mm. a home at all. Yeah. And so everyone piles into buying a home or, you know, an asset. Um, But in terms of uh, what is left over for their discretionary income after have to pay off each um, monthly mortgage, which represents an ever-increasing component of their income, there isn't that much left over. Uh, and so this is the issue. So what? Do, how do they respond to this? Of course, is with a with a huge mortgage debt, they want to pay that down as quickly as mm. possible. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so th- this is this is the issue we've got. Um, it's it's um, been building up over a long period of time. Uh, we know private debt levels are quite high in this country compared to other countries. Uh, fortunately, government debt levels are relatively low compared to other countries. So, mm. and it's so it's not just an Australian phenomenon; it's a bit of a worldwide yeah. phenomenon. It's interesting you say because we've got Australia is very heavily dominated to investing in property than yeah. other asset classes, and so even when we do well in property, we pay that mortgage off, we build equity. Yeah. At some points we sell it, and then human nature is just mental accounting. We take that profit, mm. we go to the bank and borrow more money, and then we buy bigger property. So we we don't ever take those profits and then go spend them in the economy. So all we're doing is just reinvesting the profits back into property and not spending the money, which is what drives the economy. So it's a great, what are some of the things I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night, which I did last night um, and thinking about things, what are some of the things you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about in terms of the property market that, you know, keep you up? Oh, Look, I'm a good sleeper. I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm generally reasonably good in trying to separate my professional life to my personal life. Yeah. Um, except when I go on Twitter, of course. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, um, yeah, I, I often wonder whether is there an end game to all this? Mm. You know, uh, of course, some of the housing bears would believe that, look, you know, the, the great crash is just around the corner. Mm. Uh, and look, in truth, they don't have much of a great track record. They've been saying this for many, many years. It's amazing now. where this forty percent comes from. It keeps coming. Oh, back, it just keeps it? coming back. That's <laughs> that's that's true. I mean, I first heard it back in two thousand and eight. And of course, the truth is that if the market were to fall forty percent now, we'd be still well and truly above those two thousand and eight levels, right? Mm. Um, it's a matter of yeah, you know, how far can the Authorities that be, how far can they kick the can down the road? Can the world and our country get out of this increasing debt cycle relative to incomes? What is it going to take to do that? What does this mean? Is it going to be a very painful affair? Will we muddle through it over a long period of time? How is it all going to play out? And I don't think anyone really knows the answer. There's, mm. there's a, we're in uncharted waters when it comes to this issue. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and you know, I I find that concerning. I also find it concerning for my children's future in terms of their ability to buy a home. Yep. Um, and you know what that means. But at the same time, um, we you know th- this whole issue that we've got in terms of overvalued markets, which I I believe Sydney and Melbourne are definitely overvalued markets now, despite the correction that we had. When we consider other good cities in this country. Um, they do know they do not have such problems. Mm. Uh, you know, Brisbane's actually very close to fair valuation right now. Yep. Perth is well and truly undervalued. Yep. Adelaide is undervalued. Mm. Hobart's probably looking a bit toppy right now. Mm. Canberra is just a bit overvalued, but it's not too bad. Uh, so you know, why are we having this situation? And why is the topic always on Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah. I mean, I know it's our two largest capital cities, but let's consider that as well, that there are other cities here which are doing okay, which yeah, you know, offer a good standard of living. This is interesting too because, like, you know, so, well, you've got these, you know, the regulatory powers, 
government, yep. however, mm. everything they do affects mm. the nation yep. as a whole. Mm. We keep talking about Sydney and Melbourne mm. booming or busting. Mm. Um, and you've mentioned, you know, like we're overpriced, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane's right on the money, mm. Perth, Adelaide underpriced. What'd you say about Canberra? Um, how do you determine what's on the money and what's overpriced? What's, what's overvalued? Mm. Okay. Yeah. So one of the valuation metrics that I like to use because I found it has um, been a, a reliable indicator in the past is looking at total dwelling prices to total incomes represented by nominal GDP at the national level uh, and or state underlying demand. Right. And so um, the view is that uh, housing prices compared to incomes cannot accelerate over and above incomes forever. Sooner or later, there has to be some type of reversion. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, housing prices become unaffordable for everyone mm. and no one can get in, right? No one transacts. That's right. And, <laughs> and the history does show that, that we do have these revert to means, revert to fair values based on this metric. Mm. So Sydney last had this back in 2011 uh, where the market had a correction. It was all part of a... A, a longer period of price stagnation that really started from 2004 all the way through to 2011. And funnily enough, on our numbers, it actually brought Sydney back to fair value or some of the best valuation points that I had actually ever mm. seen right. since the 1980s. Mm. Um, and sure enough, uh, the uh, when we had some rate cuts uh, in 2012, it started to fire up the market, combined with the fact that um, Sydney's population growth rate actually started to accelerate at that time. Mm. And I think this is the thing with Sydney and Melbourne over and above the other capital cities, is that Sydney and Melbourne are experiencing the easier credit conditions we're getting right now, same with the other cities, but the other cities are not getting this very strong population growth rates yep. coming through. Yeah, And the reason why Sydney and Melbourne get these really extraordinarily strong growth rates, I mean, Melbourne's growing at 2.5% per annum right yep. now, it would have to be the fastest growing city worldwide if yep. you looked at developed cities, oh, yeah. um, is that, okay, that creates very strong underlying demand. You combine that with easy credit and sure enough, you get big price rises. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that undervalue versus overvalue, but if you Use that same methodology. There's lots of countries, lots of capital cities and global cities around the world that would be ridiculously overvalued. Yes. Mm. The reason is, I believe, is, well, one, Christopher Joy's, uh, who would love to get on this podcast, but he just keeps on saying, yeah, maybe. But he uses a very interesting thing where, you know, if you then add in interest rates into that, yeah. you know, 10 times salary on interest rates of 17%, it's just not going to happen. But That's right. You know, 10 times salary with interest rates at 2.5%, you know, it's, doesn't, it's not that bad, right, because you can afford the monthly repayment. The other thing is that the total value of property, if you, a big portion of properties are paid off. So they're not transaction, they're a store of wealth. And um, it doesn't matter whether they're affordable or not because they're just profits. They're just... Prof, retain profits in the company. And so a lot of the housing market, let's say it's worth $7 trillion. Yes. Only $2 trillion of that is actually mortgages. So that's the stuff that people have to afford. That's the people who are borrowing. So $5 trillion is kind of just retain profits in the market. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, yep. it's it's the, what's a, like, and when people are going to, some of people say to me, oh, look, how is someone affording a, a three, $4 million house? Well, <laughs> how are they getting a mortgage for that? Well, the truth is they're not. They're <laughs> actually going in there with two, $3 million of cash yeah. and borrowing one or two. Yeah. Um, and at the higher end of the market, they're borrowing less because they're generally reinvesting or got profits from something. So it's that middle market, that one to two, where they're borrowing the highest percentages. But it's, and I think that's, that's why prices keep going up is because it's not based on income. It's based on what people have got. It's based on serviceability. Um, it's, yes, it's it's true that, you know, if you um, lower interest rates enough, serviceability w will improve. Mm. But if the outcome is that um, we take out more and more debt because debt is cheaper, which pushes up prices, your underlying affordability is becoming quite atrocious. Mm. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the risks start to increase that if we were to have some type of major 
credit contraction event, mm. um, this would be uh, pretty devastating for our economy um, because housing uh, is tied to the hit with the economy and everyone's taking up mega amounts of debt compared to their incomes. Mm. Um, so Chris is right to uh, point out that, yes, serviceability is still okay because of all these rate cuts, but I, I am personally concerned about what, what it means long-term for the amount of debt in the system yep. and the risks are there for that, that kind of negative credit event. And we've, we've seen a touch of this. I mean, all APRA had to do was just put on some restrictions in terms of interest-only lending, serviceability, buffers. And what do we have? We had a pretty big correction. Mm, we had a 15% yeah. decline in Sydney. Mm. And it just goes to show how sensitive the market is yep. to credit. True. Although, let's pull that apart a little bit because you've got one of the big issues mm. with the boom was the sheer volume of investor um, borrowing or people borrowing to buy investment properties versus their own home. Yes. And so I can't pull the figures off the top of my head. You might be able to. but um, It went over 50% it of did. total lending. And mm. Which is out of balance, out of whack. And obviously, yeah. uh, you know, looking at increasing the interest rates on investment loans, um, yep. you know, re resist, uh, reducing interest only lending, et cetera, <laughs> is pretty much more targeted at the investor end of the spectrum. And that had to happen. And so anecdotally, you know, yes. I'm talking to agents out there and they be saying in some areas, we were selling like 90% of our stock to investors and now we're selling five. Yeah. So when you see that massive decline, that's one of the one of the things too in terms of the investors just evacuated the market. Yes. Now what we're seeing is investor numbers are start or investor borrowing is starting to slowly increase. Yes. Um, but it's certainly had nowhere near that level. And it's, mm. it's certainly the investors aren't re-entering the market at the speed to match the bounce back. Yes. Um, and so I'm looking at this thinking, okay, well, I know that owner occupies anecdotally as well because I don't have mm. ac ma access to macro data, but we mm. want to think, oh, how deep is this pool? So mm -hmm. I know anecdotally spoke to a lot of owner occupiers who bailed the property market in the last two years of the boom. Mm. So sort of 16, 17 Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. So you got maybe two years worth of pent-up demand from them. Then you got another two years because nobody was doing anything. So mm. in the downturn, so they're all sitting on their hands waiting for it, things to change. Mm. So you got potentially four years of pent-up demand from owner-occupiers. So the, the demands or the behaviour around what's happening in the marketplace now is quite different then to what was actually happening to in the last two years of the boom. You know what I mean? Because the players are different. Yes, that's true. That, that, that is true. And then on top of that, we're, we're going to likely have in Sydney and to a lesser extent in Melbourne, a, a shortage of accommodation relative to the population. Yep. We, we've just talked about the fact we've got a current oversupply, but mm. we've gone through the fact that that's going to be absorbed fairly quickly mm. uh, over the next two years. Uh, so, yes, I, I think um, one element that's so far in this recovery is there has not been a lot of investor activity but it is likely that investors will start coming into the market in mm. Sydney and Melbourne at a rate of knots yeah. um, over the course of 2020 and maybe 2021, we'll see. Um, you know, one of the things that's going on in the market, just going back to this notion of serviceability and, and very low rates, yep. is that if you compare the current gross rental yields of a number of capital cities uh, versus the lending rate, we're now seeing the majority of capital cities offering cash flow positive properties when you take into account these two different uh, rates that are out there. Uh, so, you know, for example, in Brisbane, uh, you could buy a unit fairly easily enough on a gross rental yield of, of probably just under 5%. Yep. Okay. And if you can borrow the money in the low threes, you're doing pretty good. You've got a cash flow positive property there. Uh, and that's in the capital city of Brisbane. Okay, so might this not, is the first. Might not grow in value, but you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. But yeah. but the thing but is, your point's the same. Yeah. yeah. The thing is that uh, it's the first time I've seen in my career so many capital cities offering cash flow positive properties, mm. and if they were to cut rates into this, then that gap even widens further, and I, I think investors will eventually respond. Right. I think that's bang on. I um, because I've been watching as a broker, watch mortgage rates. Yep. Um, and there was a mass, you know, always to be one rate. Then the uh, APRA came to the banks and said, look, you've got to charge more to investors, mm. which I thought was not pretty fair. Mm. If that makes owner-occupier rates cheaper mm. overall, then, mm. you know, the investors can deal with that. Uh, you know, interest-only <laughs> versus P&I, well, I think, you know, probably maybe you should charge interest-only a little bit more and to kind of disincentive for people not 
over leveraging. Mm. Um, but that gap went out quite big and now it's almost becoming the same. So we can get yes. like five year fixed rate investor loans. Mm. So five years in interest only under three and a half percent. And so you're talking at owner occupied P and I rate 3.1 yep. roughly. So, you know, 30, 40 basis points for the next. And so you're going to be right. Like a lot of investors are saying, well, I can buy a good property, maybe not an apartment in Brisbane. I'll, say park that one, but maybe <laughs> yeah. more of a house in Brisbane, you know, on yields of low mm. fours. Yes. And why don't we buy that? Because it's going to be cash flow neutral. Yep. Um, and yeah. then as soon as you get the, sp well, the sprookers will be back. It's back to the, for a cup of coffee a week, you yeah. too can be a property investor. Yeah, there, there is um, there is definitely uh, an element of that uh, where I think, uh, well, as I said before, I think investors are going to respond, mm. uh, especially once they start well, now we're seeing the price rises. I think it's it's yeah. We're going to see them in twenty twenty for sure, unless of course we see regulated stops jumps we're in again sheep. and tries yeah. to stop it. We're all sheep. It's interesting you say that around. <laughs> uh, they want to see price rises because that's exactly what investors want to do. They don't, um, you know, they only want to invest when other people are investing. Yeah. They, they've generally been, you know, investors are generally momentum operators. Mm. They they want to buy when the market's going up, and they want to sell, <laughs> stay well and truly away when the market's so going down. So calling them investors is really the wrong word, isn't it? Oh, speculators. <laughs> they they like to see themselves as investors, but they're not really investing. Um, you did talk. You mentioned early on. We talked about you know what's the elements. So what do you look at when you're forecasting? And you did yep. talk about long term fundamentals. Yep. Um, what are the things that you look for for the long term? Well, it, it, it does. Population growth rates are a, a major factor. Mm. Um, no question. So I, I generally like to, that, that forms a fairly large component uh, because, uh, of course, it, it manifests itself in terms of a calculation of underlying demand for yeah. real estate. So that's probably one of the biggest factors that I take into account long term. Um, medium term, Definitely uh, GDP numbers, what the economy is doing, employment growth mm. is another factor that I like to take into mm. account. I also attempt to take into account what is in the pipeline in terms of infrastructure activity. And this matters most particularly for, say, the mining-related towns. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, we attempt to take that into account as well. But, yeah, the long-term factors are generally for... For me, uh, the population growth rates and then and then comes through the 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 overall economy. Yeah, yeah, the infrastructure is a big one now, right? Obviously, with the state government trying to spend as much money as they can, they're trying to bring that infrastructure spend forward. Yeah, and this is one of the responses from the government and the authorities in terms of the job losses occurring in housing construction, but um, it if it feels like they're going to be a bit late to the party, and I. I, I question whether we're going to see a complete offset. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't offset, uh, you know, big, big end of town, building hundreds of thousands of dwellings with a couple of roads. Um, it's yeah. not really, and a, maybe a tunnel that's going to be built over 10 years. Like A it's, lot less manpower required. Yeah, mm. that's right. So mm. I agree with you. It's not going to be anywhere near as offsetting. And mm. um, They might get be able to build it cheaper, though, because their labour will be a bit they cheaper. Might, and we <laughs> might see a mining investment recovery in mm. 2020 and 2021. So perhaps a combination of the infrastructure spend coming forward plus a pickup and mining mm. may do a better offset. Yep. I think the Reserve Bank is certainly hoping that that's going to happen. Depends what these activists get through with uh, Adani Mine, but we'll leave that one. <laughs> <laughs>
something very dodgy happened through that whole transaction. The property manager was in a service apartment on the Gold Coast. Uh, she couldn't sell it uh, easily enough. The property manager eventually found a mate of his to buy it. I put lots of pressure on my grandmother to sell and um, basically sold it at what I estimate now to be looking at the data at the time at about 40% below where the market was. Right? And uh, we knew it was bad at the time. My grandmother was getting on a bit, so perhaps she just was feeling a bit panicky about the whole situation, mm. just did it. That spurred me on to get SQN research going over the long term and spurred me on to get more information out there so people wouldn't get sucked in. Wow. They wouldn't yeah. get duped. And I have had a great passionate belief in terms of trying to provide good, transparent information out there. And I know there is an issue right now where we've got lots of conflicting information. It's difficult, again, for home buyers. But I strongly recommend people still seek information that they don't go off what perhaps a, you know, um, what a spruiker may well tell you, yep. for lack of better words, okay, yep. that they do their own research. And that doesn't mean, you know, I want them to come to my website. Yes. They don't have to come to my website. They can go elsewhere if they want. They can rely on the government data. But get yourself tooled up with information so you don't get burnt because it, it can, uh, you know, have significant consequences if you get a property transaction wrong. I mean, that's a very, that's, I love people's whys. Uh, and so that's a very strong why on what got you into it. And it will last you for obviously your whole career because, you know, it is a, it is a big issue, right? Where people, um, you know, there's misinformation and if you trust the wrong people and, mm. and, and problem with property is unregulated. Mm. So no one, you can't, you know, go back and say the real estate agent told me this or that spruker told me that. And, you know, and so I think you're right. Due diligence, that's the whole purpose of this podcast is to, Great confirmation, uh, information people can rely <laughs> Create confirmation bias. <laughs> now that's a Freudian slip, but it's absolutely not the purpose of this podcast. No. no thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Louis. You know, you actually nailed it. That is exactly what the point of this podcast is. We're all on the same page here, which is fantastic. Your The insights that you've given us has been fantastic. We really, really appreciated that. Particularly that going into the psyche of... Um, who the big players are and who's making decisions and what are they thinking, you know. So that was a great insight and really appreciate your time. No, thank you. And, I mean, just before we finally wrap up, obviously you've got your boom and bust report. Yes. Which um, We'll put the links in yeah, the show Yeah, put notes. the link in for that. Yeah. And I think um, just a quick overview, you know, I know we've got listeners all over the country, but let's just go for the big two, you know, the big beasts. What do you think in terms of Sydney, Melbourne? Mm -hmm. It's basically, let's call it Christmas now. Yep. What do you reckon? Uh you know, the median price growth over the next 12 months. So <laughs> You had to pick one so scenario. Well, well, the forecast is our base case scenario that yep. we, we've put our hat on is that uh, Sydney will rise between 10 to 14% for 2020 yep. and Melbourne 11 to 15%. Uh, so, uh, and we're also forecasting that Perth will finally record some price increases um, in 2020. Uh, and if I recall the numbers, I think we had Brisbane down by between four to seven percent. Uh, so, um, yep, big price gains uh, when you forecast say down, for Sydney. You mean Sorry. to increase? To increase, yeah. <laughs> down well, on your list to increase. Down yes. on my yeah. list to increase. Just yeah. to be clear. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, for our listeners, there, you know, you know, double-digit price growth in Sydney, Melbourne. Yeah. Um, you know, based on a lot of those things we discussed, um, you're not the only one starting to say that, though, right, are you? Like, you, you're probably one of the first, probably putting your hat on it, but I think a lot in the last couple of weeks of, you know, CBA and a few other people have started to also say that they're thinking the same thing. Well, yes, uh, I mean, the, the reality is right now as we speak on an annualised basis, Sydney and Melbourne are, are doing these numbers as we speak. Yeah. Yeah, um, that, that, so, that's really. the reality. But actually, doing it for <laughs> in a, Sydney, <laughs> doing it for an annual period rather than a month or a day that I'm starting to see. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit di different story to actually it is, sustain it. Is, it. It's a different story. Um, so some of the assumptions we're, we're we're working on with our forecasts next year is that APRA will not step into the market, so they'll stay away. Um, so uh, we spent a lot. Of, I spent a lot of time looking into what APRA may or may not do. Uh, and my conclusion was based on their communications was that they will stay out of the market next year. Um, it also assumes that uh, rates, interest rates will actually stay stable, that we will not actually see another rate cut. 
Now, we were to see another rate cut that could actually inflame the market further. If, on the other hand, though, we were to see a situation where the Reserve Bank panicked because the economy is tanking and they were re to reduce rates to zero and start quantitative easing, well, we actually forecasted that what we would see in the second half of the year would be that prices could start to fall again despite those cuts because the economy uh, will be in such a state. Uh, so we're hoping that that doesn't, that doesn't play out because I, I was uh, old enough to see what the last recession in this country looked like and it was a pretty terrible affair. Um, so we, we don't want to see that. Uh, but yes, in there about the Westpac, the ASIC case, um, I mean, this is something that we thought was resolved. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, ASIC this week, which is, you know, December, so this will be released in January. Yes. But next month, so February, mm -hmm. um, ASIC and Westpac are back in court. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, ASIC have already released guidelines this week saying that, you know, lending needs to look at actual living expenses for home loan applications. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a bit of a war that was happened all through 2019. Mm -hmm. If... ASIC are successful in that appeal, it will probably send shockwaves across the whole lending industry because it'll go back to like it was in the Royal Commission. Have you have you forecast that? that are you including that into it, your data? It, it, I have assumed uh, that ASIC won't win the case, yep. right, and that we will not see uh, a major restriction of lending occur again, okay, for 2020. So potentially if ASIC were to win the case and – and, I don't think there could be any further appeals on it. Yeah. Um, then uh, you, know, you would see potentially in the second half of the year banks scrambling to put in more restrictions, yeah. which could be a dampener on the market. So that that is the the, the potential. Um, uh, let's see how it plays out. Uh, of course, uh, very very interesting times. Uh, ASIC on on these fronts haven't had the, a great a track record of victories <laughs> in this in the courts. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yep, that's right. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you, Louis. That's great. Appreciate that. Thank no you, problem. Louis. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is. Well, you know what's always interesting when we interview these sort of brains like Louis, right? I mean, he was great because he did talk about all of those big macro data and the things that happen in the big end of town, for argument's sake, that do ultimately trickle down and, and factor into what the market does, what prices do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, fundamentally he said what it comes down to is that no two properties are alike and there's differences and then there's human behaviour and there's all of that that goes on. And I think that that, as property buyers, we always need to remember, and I guess that's the premise of this whole podcast, is that humans... Um, are guided by the elephant more than we're guided by the little rider on top. So this boot camp is, you know, once again, being the rider on top is understanding that, you know, humans respond and react to all the big stuff that happens, but they respond and react on individual basis to individual properties in individual um, situations. So it's to, I guess, have that clarity. It's just a, a reminder to have clarity around looking for property that is scarce, looking at quality property, reminding yourself that if you buy a property, it is a long-term commitment. All of that stuff, I guess, is a bit airy-fairy, this boot camp. <laughs> it's not as practical as a lot of the other ones, but it's just an absolute reminder that all this stuff goes on, we still have to make clear decisions for ourselves. So therefore, we need to be focused on what we need. We need to be focused on what we can borrow, what we can afford. We need to be aware of what's going on in the market and not be dragged along by FOMO and, 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 and all that sort of stuff. We fundamentally have to make a decision about our own requirements and choose the property that suits those requirements and be very clear and deliberate and intentional in the way in which we go ahead buying property. I think that's really the boot camp for this one. Yeah, I think timing, Marcus, is just really tough. Um, and so if you're constantly looking at, you know, the optimal point to enter, 
um, and, you know, trying to invest and time things with based on all this information, it's always changing, it's always shifting. And so you just never really know. But the good thing is once you buy, you know, bought a good property is you don't actually have to sell it. You just ride the wave, right? And the less you, less you transact, generally the better if you bought a good property. So, you know, you can basically switch off. So it's kind of like just get in, get a quality asset if it's the right thing to do, obviously. And then all this other stuff, don't really worry about it because noise. Just yeah, it's noise. just noise. Just, just kind of worry about the other things. More important, don't become listening to podcasts all the time like us. <laughs> you can still listen if you find it entertaining. Yeah, entertaining is okay. Join us for our next episode when we have a return visit from Strata lawyer Amanda Farmer. Now, the reason that I asked her to come back on the podcast was because we had dinner one night and she said something very interesting to me about the liability and obligation of Strata owners, something that I didn't know and something that I'm guaranteeing 99.9% of Strata owners don't know and they should. So tune in if you want to find out what that is. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.